Welcome to our Holden Village podcast. For over 50 years now, Holden Village has traveled a rich history of faith that has transformed a copper mining town into a vibrant place of education, programming, and worship. Holden has sought to welcome all who seek contemplation and community in the remote wilderness of the beautiful Cascade Mountains. We continue to invite people of all ages to come alongside our rhythms, which inspire and equip travelers for a sustainable life of faith outside the village. And we continue to listen and reflect on our story and history and seek to discover our place in God's creative mission in our world. Our podcasts are a way of sharing our conversations with our teaching faculty around reformation, the reforming of our relationships with the earth, with each other, and with the divine. Let's tune in and join the conversation. Hi, my name is Jason DeRose. I am leading a session, a series of sessions at Holden called Unearned Intimacies on the Ethics of Telling Other People's Stories. And we're talking about uh, journalism ethics because I am a journalist. I am uh, an editor at National Public Radio, NPR News. I edit um, Western News, sort of from Colorado West. And I edit religion coverage and LGBT coverage and Native American coverage. So I have a, a lot of things that I, that I oversee. Um, one of the questions that I have uh, throughout this week, throughout my presentations, is... Um, how do we tell other people's stories in ways that the people, the subjects of our stories, hear themselves represented accurately, um, with uh, sensitivity, um, with genuineness, but also in ways that help people who aren't the subjects of the stories understand what's going on. So um, we're talking about... Um, how do we understand how we tell the stories about others? And how do we understand how we tell the stories about ourselves? Um, the title th that I mentioned a moment ago is Unearned Intimacy. And I think that this is, uh, this is something that happens a lot within journalism. Uh, I think the best way to understand what unearned intimacy is, is to understand what earned intimacy is. So I think of earned intimacy as... You've been friends with someone from college for 25 years. You've got long experience together. You've had those heart-rending conversations at 19. You've also had those heart-rending conversations at 40, 40 years old. That's an earned intimacy. Another kind of earned intimacy might be your relationship with your pastor, that you, you know, you've been a member of this congregation for 10 years. That person baptized your kids, was there when your parent died. Um, it's a kind of earned intimacy between the two of you. You also have earned intimacy between, um, you know, siblings, perhaps. Um, you and your kids might have an earned intimacy. But there's some mutual give and take in earned, earned intimacy. But unearned intimacy is this, um, unearned intimacy is uh, the result of a journalistic encounter. So you are going about your day and say you're a chaplain at a nursing home and you work with people who have dementia and that's part of your job and then this journalist comes in and wants to uh, do a story about your work as a chaplain for people with dementia and wants to talk to the family members of the people who the chaplain is caring for 
And if the chaplain and the families agree to that interview, you're engaging in this act of unearned intimacy. They can always say no. Like an elected official probably can't say, no, I don't want to talk to you. Although these days it seems like some uh, more and more elected officials are not uh, interested in, in public transparency. But if you're a private person going about your private world and you're, you know, just a journalist finds you interesting and you agree to that interview, agree to be the subject of a profile, you're engaging in this act of unearned intimacy. You're allowing that journalist into your life in a way that is peculiar and unusual. You wouldn't generally walk up to a stranger and say, by the way, my grandmother has dementia. You would, ha you would only get to that point if you already had some kind of earned intimacy. But journalists enter people's lives often in a difficult moment in their lives. The plane has just crashed with your parent on it. You just lost... Um, the election, I guess that's a more public, but uh, you know, some some turmoil is in your life, and a journalist comes in and wants to talk to you. So, I think that people, the subjects of those interviews, might confuse what's going on there because it isn't a true intimacy; it's a sort of performed intimacy with the journalist, and it's not a two-way street. The journalist is not going to want to answer the same questions that she or he is asking the subject. And in some instances, a journalist might give up a little private information to get to make the other person comfortable. But more often than not, the journalist is going to, you know, play his cards very close to his vest, not disclose too much information, or just enough to get the person talking, but not say, oh, my grandmother too had dementia. Because then... The journalist is sort of influencing how the person is talking to that to to him or her, and remember that the this journalistic encounter of unearned intimacy isn't for the sake of either the reporter or the subject. It's for the sake of an audience that doesn't have special insight into the situation, and so you need to have a conversation. You need to ask the questions that will help others who don't know anything about this topic understand it, think about it, learn about it, be interested in it. I think that that's very true. The person who's telling the story gets some benefit out of telling the story, especially if it's not a story they've been telling over and over and over again, mm -hmm. but rather a new story in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, maybe 15 years ago, when I was covering a lot of the clergy sex abuse stuff going on in the, in the Catholic, but all the other churches as well, I remember interviewing a uh, survivor of clergy sex abuse, and after I spoke, after I interviewed him, he actually had contact. He he saw me at some event covering a protest, and he came up to me and said, "You know, I'm interested in talking to you about what happened to me." And so we set up a time later to to chat when he could come to the studios, and I interviewed him for about an hour about his whole experience and. After it ended and I you know, pressed save, he said to me, you know, that's the first time I've ever talked about that to somebody who wasn't either my therapist or a very close family member. But I, I thought it was important now to talk publicly about what happened. And I have a great <clears throat> deal of respect for him for doing that. I also, and then I asked him, this was after 
as, as I said, we stopped recording. Um, how was it different talking to me versus other people, the, the very few other people he talked to? And he said, well, um, with therapists, there's sort of this goal that there will be some kind of processing and closure over the, pro- over the course of the months or years of therapy. And with the family, there was this idea that if I told them, they would, you know, view me differently and understand something about me. But he said, with you, it was much more sort of a blank slate of, I think it's just important to tell the story so that other people can hear the story, not for anything that I'm going to get out of it. Because sometimes the subjects of pieces of journalism end up having not such great consequences for being the subject of that. So I could imagine, I, I don't know this to be the case with the person I'm telling you about now, but like, you know, I did do a story about him. I asked the archdiocese for comment. They wouldn't comment about the case. Um, but what if, say, somebody from a congregation heard his story and decided to harass him about spreading rumors about the church or... Uh, you know, speaking ill of a priest. And what if the congregation that he, I don't know, I can't remember if he went to church still or not, but like what if that changed the nature of his relationship with his own congregation or with friends of his because they didn't know that he was a survivor of abuse? Um, There could be consequences to being the subject, and they're not all good. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there is good consequence, like people respect and admire you and have compassion for what you've gone through, but people also become very upset because you've told the truth. You've told on someone. And so I think it does change the person telling the story, but it sometimes is harmful for them to tell the story. And as a journalist, I don't like to walk into an interview saying like, are you sure you want to do this? Thing Bad things could come of it because no one would have talked to you if you did that. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. But I do think, sort of more generally, there might be you know, might need to be a need for better media education in the United States. But um, in what people, way? Well, yeah. if people so that people who interact with journalists okay. understand what that's about. Why mm-hmm. would you do it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a lot of people think, unfortunately, that like journalists do it to get rich and famous, which is funny because very you know, like a handful of people on TV are rich and famous journalists. Most of us make decent but not great livings uh, doing what we do. And very few people do it to get famous. Most of us do it because we have an interest in the truth and we have an interest in telling the truth, in in a belief that telling the truth shapes the culture for the better, Mm -hmm. even if the truth is hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's sort of a lack of trust in media in general I happen to work for a news organization that has a fairly high trust level. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still, I didn't personally earn that trust. I helped the company earn that trust. Yep. But when I, so often I think people will talk to people in public radio because I've heard people say this when I ask them, and say, oh, well, I'll talk to you, you're the good guys. I don't necessarily want to think that I am the only good guy or that public media is the only good guy, but they, they, the trust that they're placing in the journalist has to do with the institution that they represent. I mean, I I wouldn't necessarily, if I were going to be interviewed by some organization, I wouldn't necessarily let myself be interviewed by some news organizations versus others. 
Yep. Like I might agree to, you know, Slate or The New Yorker, but I might not agree to. And that yeah. has mo more to do with like the reputations of the company and where I would want to show up as a, as a subject. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the, the very early, early, early mission statement of NPR had this whole, remember it was being written in like the 70s during like all sorts of peace movements and political movements. And there was this notion of that uh, of progressivism as like we don't have to be what we were we could be better than we are and i worry with sort of the national political rhetoric sometimes that we don't see the future as better than the past we see the future as um the past was best and we need to get back to the past in order to be good again and i don't think that that's true mm -hmm. um Maybe I'm too Lutheran about this, but I'm not, pos I'm not positive that there is like absolute trajectory of progress, but I also think that you have to live with the hope. You can't just sort of curse God and die. You have to live in hope and not yes. with resignation to whatever, whatever happens is just what the world gives me. Thanks for joining us for another Holden Village podcast. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.